You're listening to the Art of Move podcast, hosted by Dr. William Raybar and Anthony Manuel, where we attempt to create a grand unified theory of human movement, biomechanics, and training. If you enjoy these episodes, you can watch them streamed live on nofilter.net, where you can interact directly and have all your questions answered in real time. One. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Art of Move podcast with myself, Anthony Manuel, my good friend, Dr. William Raybar. We are out here in the Canadian Rockies, or at least Will is. I am out here in Playa del Carmen, Mexico for the next month, but we are still going live and recording podcasts for you, trying to find the grand unified theory of human movement and biomechanics. Today, we are talking about some of the discussions that happen within the field of fitness, within the field of movement and biomechanics, and how we ascertain information, how we can defer to authority figures to uh, assert our positions, and how that can easily degrade into how our quest to have integrity with what it is that we are asserting can quickly degrade into an appeal to authority fallacy, which is where you defer to an authority figure and basically assert that something is true just because an authority figure had asserted it. And so we're going to come up with different examples of that. We're going to discuss where that where we see that is prevalent. And we're also just going to kind of discuss the state of affairs as it currently as we currently observe it in terms of people being able to have discussions and disagreements amongst themselves within the fitness industry, which is it's it's not in a great state of affairs, we'll put it that way. Uh yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to this. Just a appeal to authority because I see it everywhere, right? And there's a difference of how the public uses it, um, how strength coaches, personal trainers, and I would say one level below, you know, what what the scientists are, how they use it, and mm-hmm. then how the scientists themselves use it. So there's the public, there's the trainers, um, and then there's the scientists, right? And I'm going to say the public usually just defers to experts, right? Like the average person in public is like, I need an expert in plumbing. So I'm going to call the expert in plumbing. Makes sense, right? Like that's the good part about it, right? Yes. Um, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking more where somebody is interested. Let's say a Naudi, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. He's very interested in the subject. He's dedicated his whole life in it. He's uh, looked at it from multiple angles, thinks about it all day, yet he'll be dismissed because he's not a quote-unquote expert by the scientist class, right? It's like where's your peer-reviewed studies? And even the class below that, which I would, again, define as uh, other strength trainers or, um, let's say, physiotherapists or chiropractors or sports med doctors. Academics. Yeah, academics. I guess you can say that, right? So there is a time when someone who's not a quote-unquote classic authority, an expert who has uh, academic credentials, has a lot of knowledge. So on the pros, there's that. And on the cons, there's a lot of charlatans, right? So how Mm. how do we decide who's who? Right. And uh, that's kind of where we're going to go with this discussion. Um, yeah. Did you have anything to add to that? Well, yeah, I, I think what, what, what we want to distinguish is that, that we're not saying that, like, looking to an authority figure as a source of good, authentic reliable information is a bad thing. In fact, I think it is kind of good to look at someone's credentials first and foremost to see. Um, but I think even talking about what the nature of credentials could inhibit or could 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 be uh, considered right like does a person have to have a phd for example in order to be considered an expert on a subject or could you use naudi aguilar as an example who founded a functional training system and exhibits a lot of different results of 
structural and behavioral changes in his clients. Is that a level of sufficient evidence? Because that's, that's their argument. That's the functional patterns argument. It's like, look at our results. Look at the results that we're exhibiting. And a lot of people who are, um, who are basically non-academic trainer-oriented experts are making the claim, well, it's like, but I'm getting the results and I'm putting a lot of thought into this and I'm, 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 I'm observing what I'm observing and you can see these things. So what constitutes evidence and what constitutes qualifications as it pertains to this? As we're trying to discern between an expert and a charlatan, those are some of the things that we were going to kind of explore today too, I think. Yeah, the, uh, the nature of evidence is a whole other subject onto itself. Um, we can dip into that, but I mean, I could have five episodes on that alone, right? Like, what is evidence? Um, this is how I see it. I, I wanted to simplify it overall, okay? So we have the, um, the class of people who aren't experts who are like, hey, I need an engineer. I need a, uh, let's say, a, a somebody to help me work out. Um, oh, that guy over there, Joel Seedman, he's got a PhD. He knows exactly what he's talking about. Right. Mm. Or I could go to uh, a Brett Contreras and he'll know exactly what he's talking about with the glutes or a Mike Israel, who is a full range of motion guy, bodybuilder. He'll know exactly what he's talking about. These guys uh, take the best what they think is the best uh, material from the peer reviewed research and the amalgamation of what they believe is that is the consensus. And that's the truth. OK, so um, so there's that class of it. And then there's the class below that kind of I belong to where it's like a chiropractor. And this is how I came up in school where you kind of have the gurus going. Okay. So Stu McGill would be an example. It's like, oh man, Stu, like when you're a student, you're like, Stu knows so much. He's got a lab. He's got all these, uh, you know, he's done a hundred publications. Brett Contreras knows so much about the glutes. And you kind of idolize these guys who know so much about the science. And when you're coming up, you just haven't had time to amalgamate it all so you look at these guys and you're like wow they know so much how Mm. could anybody get past that how could anybody know more than that right so that's kind of where you're at in in that uh you know league of it right and you'll see this you'll see a lot of guys appeal to a guy named greg layman and uh this is like no bullshit physio adam meekins and like there's a whole class of like physios out there who um appeal to the uh what's it called bioso biomedical no sorry biopsychosocial social model um they are trying to take the best of the papers and like throw out papers that aren't very good in their eyes and what it really comes down to is what you believe the best information is and usually it is the consensus that becomes the best information Mm. okay so um and popularity of the person right so Stu mcgill would be who who follows Stu mcgill you know greg Locke, he's like a mm-hmm. big giant power lifter mm-hmm. in australia there's a uh, squat university there's um uh what are those guys called mike from move you they're yeah. all Stu mcgill underlings they use Stu mcgill's premises in their work and i used to do this too right so mm. um you look at Stu mcgill and you're like i don't really need to look at the research because he's already amalgamated it he already has the best stuff. So I follow Stu McGill. I get the best science. So I'll argue on Stu McGill's behalf to a guy like me now who's like, wait a second, you know, when I'm when I see an argument that needs sorting out and then you get piled on by the Stu McGill guys who are like, who are you? You're not an expert. 
uh, where's your PhD? Where's your credentials? It's, it becomes a ridiculous sort of thing. It's like, no, let's talk about the ideas. So a guy like Naudi will talk about the ideas. A guy mm. like, uh, you know, like go to movement, whack. Uh, they're talking about ideas, mm. okay? Where other people will pull out their credentials if they have them and say, no, you're wrong. I got this credential too bad, right? So where's the fine line there? Right, so, so the idea here that I'm hearing is that people will automatically dismiss some ideas if they, if they are contrarian to the popular narrative strictly based on the lack of credentials that a person brings forward first. And I've seen this firsthand, right? This isn't just a base accusation with, or a baseless accusation. This is something that we see frequently, right? Where it's, if, it's, if it is a Goda, if it is an Audi, it, you know, there's, there's no accredited body, then they're they're sort of dismissed they're not taken seriously now talking about the ideas is an interesting thing because obviously people there is infighting within these groups that are also phds that also are accredited that are also have these you know these uh, official bodies of um, you know accreditation ac- ac- what's what's the word ac- accreditation Either sure way. um but, you can use that <laughs> academic accreditation yeah so, but if you, if you looked at the philosophy of science series that we did a, a while back, one of the issues that you see about people who are kind of in these academic circles discussing the ideas is that they're only looking at the ideas that are filtered through their perceptive lens in terms of what it is that they're looking at. And so this is um, an issue that you kind of run into when you have a different first principle idea like Goda's model of efficient gate patterning um, where they noticed consistent patterns happening in catastrophic injuries when you have people who are suggesting, you know, like Naudi, who are suggesting that you should train in a different way that fundamentally disagrees with the mainstream consensus. Like you said, once there's a mainstream consensus, that becomes the best information amongst experts to a degree, or at least accredited experts. Uh, so when you come forward with a different first principle idea, that's that's when that's when the um, appeal to authority or the appeal to I'm an expert and you're not, and so therefore I can dismiss this idea because I have these credentials. But the issue is if someone comes forward with a different first principle idea and they challenge the first principle, it sort of topples over this whole tower of authority that this person has. Because if their first principle is wrong and they've built their entire theory of their knowledge and their specialized knowledge on top of a, an incorrect first principle, then it just topples over and their, their, um, their accredited authority means nothing anyway, right? And so this is, this is one of the issues that we kind of run into where it's like we have to be able to talk about ideas even if they threaten a person's position of authority, a person's position in society, a person's professional status. It's painful for a lot of people both from an ego perspective, from a perspective of like, oh shit, like if this information is actually true, then that puts everything that I've ever studied at risk of, of being false, of being irrelevant, essentially. I don't want to be irrelevant as a professional. If, if I'm identified with my profession, I don't want to be made irrelevant. That's financially scary. That's personally scary. Um, so... The easiest thing to do, and I think it's not even a conscious thing that people do, is just like, well, I I went to university and I studied all these things, and there's no way my first principles are wrong, so fuck off, kind of thing. 
Well, that's what it's like when you're there, right? You're like, how could anybody know more than me? I just spent my whole life learning all these things. Of course I know the most. And as soon as I get into a PhD, of course I know the most. So they don't even believe anybody else should be fighting. It's like the power to sway the public narrative is really the power dynamic there, right? Mm. And again, the let's say two PhDs are arguing. They'll draw upon the peer-reviewed science. So it has to be peer-reviewed or what are you even doing here? Like, how do you know your information's correct if it's not reviewed by peers who are my friends, by the way? You know, like <laughs> a, a lot of guys just work together and they're like, look, it's peer reviewed, right? Um, not to say that peer review is completely bad, but it does have a gatekeeping role as well, right? The pros are that other people will look at your work. The cons are it's gatekeeping and confirmation bias. And you don't get information outside of the system coming in. And that goes back to an episode that we did called the Kuhn Cycle of Scientific Revolution, mm. where um, people do normal science. So scientists do normal science when you agree on the first principles of what you're talking about. But if someone comes in and sweeps the first principle away, everyone's in a panic. So let's say somebody says, hey, you have an incorrect gate model, but you've been an analyzing gate theory on top of theory on top of theory for a long time thousands of phds have argued over those higher level concepts but the first principle is incorrect then you're in trouble right like then uh there's going to be a lot of backlash and that's what's happening right now in this industry it's very mm. there's new technology and that is public availability to thousands of observations that were never there before so technology has really killed the um hierarchy structure here not killed it but put it in jeopardy made it open source a little bit exactly more, right? there's so a the lot ability... of intelligence sorry I was just going to say the ability to actually ascertain information is more open source the university you know when we had our interview with uh, uber boyo he kind of gave the history of how the social structure of a university would work it used to be this sort of arcane library of, of inf exclusive information. There was a sense of exclusivity and only people who are university educated would become privy to this particular knowledge. Now information is open source because of the internet. Um, there's obviously a lot of shit information that you can have access to on the internet as well, right? There's, it's not just propagation of good information. There's also propagation of just random bullshit that is just out there, which is probably the majority of the information that you're going to yeah. find on the internet realistically. But the reality is, is, is that it's there beyond that. There's also such a thing as practical application and figuring things out on your own through practical application and life experience. And so I think that reducing everything to abstractions or academic study or needing to study the minutia of every particular thing, um, doesn't necessarily relate to whether or not a person is competent in the practical application and the practical understanding of a particular methodology or how it relates to actually generating results or meaningful changes in a person's biomechanics, for example. Well, uh, now again, there's observations that were not available before. Thousands, let's say ACLs, right? Thousands of ACLs on YouTube alone from different demographics in different situations from different age groups um and you can watch them in frame by frame slow motion this was never available to the public before but academics are still only appealing to lab work as the way to ascertain what is happening okay mm. so what is smarter if i just started over again would i do the observations first that i have available and then 
uh, try to come up with a hypothesis or do I keep my old hypothesis? Hypothesis is <laughs> multiple. Okay? Yeah. yeah. Do I keep those old ones and just keep going with my old theories that were there before I had the available information that we have now? So a lot of people are saying, no, let's do new observations. Okay. And my old uh, argument was that, hey, since all these are open source available, you could have thousands of PhDs on at one time watching the same thing and talking about what is happening. And then, and I'm talking about mechanically, and then you can try to come up with experiments and hypotheses to go into a lab and confirm these findings. Mm. But that's not happening, right? And a system like Gota is like, hey, wait a second, we see these observations here. They're being ignored, okay? And uh, a lot of people on the second level tier, the strength coaches, are protecting the PhDs. This is my mm. hypothesis. Uh, unpopular. It will be unpopular among strength coaches. But you're just appealing to authority. You mm. want to look at the observations first and then draw uh, hypothesis from the observations. Don't use the old hypotheses that were not made from actual observations in the past. But the structure of the hierarchy of how things go will get not toppled, but shaken a little bit. Okay, so that's my hypothesis there. Science should be treated as a method. Um, there is a structure to it, but it shouldn't be treated like a religion. Okay, like mm. where there's such a hierarchy that no one can participate but the priestly class. Okay, and the priestly class are like the PhDs now and the... Um, and underneath that, there is the protection of the, the PhD class where, you know, you'll come in, you'll say something logical as an argument. It's like, no, no, no. Brett Contreras says this. Here's a paper. Boom. Do you have peer review? Where's your evidence? It's like mm. you'll only accept one type of evidence, and that's from the PhDs and the peer review. So it goes around in a circle, right? So it's kind of ridiculous. And that, um, you know, I want to I kind of um... – go back to this idea of how different people interpret information, right? Because like on one hand you have the consumer base or people who are not educated in a particular subject. We're using fitness as the example here, right? This is, I think true across the board. I think, you know, cause I'm, I, I work in marketing, right? I'm always thinking about how people respond to different marketing messages and understand things. And a lot of the times charlatanism is the result of people who are very good at communicating a marketing message or promising a certain result or promising something sensational, but don't necessarily have the credentials or the experience or the results to back it up. Right. Conversely, if you are demonstrating to someone, if your marketing is literally the demonstration of the results that you are getting from previous results that you have gotten, that's not charlatanism. That's just demonstrating the thing that you can do. And then people say, I want that same result. And I, I, I want that, right? And so how people form an understanding of authority is kind of interesting, right? Because I think there is um, at least something that I've observed trend-wise is that people are trusting less and less that a university education has the value that it once did. I know on the job yeah. market, it used to be something that was like, oh, you know, you want a good job, you go to university and you study this and this, and it puts you on a fast track to have a good career. And then you're, you know, you go, to, you, you go, if you want to make a certain amount of money, you, you basically, you go to university, you get a degree, get some specialized knowledge and you can work a job. Um, you know, I, I once heard someone say that a bachelor degree now is basically like glorified toilet paper or glorified high school. 
you know, if, if you want to be a little bit less crass. Right now, university educations are a dime a dozen, and people can learn so much faster and so much more specialized knowledge and so much, um, you know, with less fluff and, and more contract, you know, protracted uh, on the internet. You know, there's self-learning is becoming a, a bigger and bigger trend now. And this is kind of interesting. So how people are forming opinions, at least from a marketing psychology perspective of, of how a person is an authority, is by looking at the results of what a person can provide, ultimately. I really, I really believe that, right? And, and yeah. it's, it's different, right? Because there is, still, there is still social conditioning and social preconditions of like, if you have a PhD, you've spent a long time studying a specific topic. I have friends who are PhDs, and they are extremely knowledgeable on the subject that they studied. They are doing continual research. They, but the reason they got a PhD wasn't to be like, I have a PhD, you have to listen to me. It's so that they can continue to study the subject more in depth and make more discoveries about the field that they're, you know, basically that they studied. They're still, like, even as a PhD, they're still actively studying. And so, you know, Will, you're, you're bringing up this, um, this article, An Illustrated Guide to a PhD. You want to run us through what that is? Yeah, so this is actually from Brett Contreras. So I spent uh, some time going through Brett Contreras's blog, and I came upon this illustrated guide to a PhD, and it's basically what a PhD does and how it works, right? So um, uh, let me read it. And uh, if you're on YouTube with this, um, you can see the art of the um, slides that I'm going to go with, but I'll try to describe them as best as possible. So. What an excellent way to view a PhD. Using my situation as, as an example, I've read all the research on the glutes. I've conducted my own experiments. Soon I'll be collecting and publishing data, and I have expanded the boundaries of glute training. But in the grand scheme of things, taking the cosmic overview, as my grandmother used to say, it's a small aspect of knowledge. Agreed, right? So mm. there's that's the thing. Right now, there's such micro scales of PhDs. You can get a PhD in the smallest smallest subsection of a category and let's say you're a biologist and you get it in studying a certain type of bacteria the average person will still think you're a biologist you know everything Mm. but instead you've been spending years studying one particular bacteria okay so um again this is why we need all sorts of individuals pushing the boundaries in their particular areas of focus so we can continue to broaden the sphere of knowledge um, again, knowledge here for him means um, PhDs coming together with information. That's knowledge. Mm, mm-hmm. Okay, um, That word in itself, I would dispute, but I'm going to keep going. Strength training requires research. So much additional research is slow growing, agreed. But nevertheless, we managed to make considerable progress with each and every month. Um, so let's go through the pictures. It's an illustrated guide. Um, Every fall, I explain to a fresh batch of PhD students what a PhD is. It's hard to describe in words, so I use pictures. Read below for an illustrated guide, guide to a PhD. Image a cir- imagine a circle that contains all of human knowledge. So there's a circle, and it's blank, okay? By the time you finish, finish elementary school, you know a little. So there's a little dot in the middle of the circle. Next one. By the time you finish high school, you know a bit more. So there's another dot circling the original dot okay so now you know a little bit okay with the bachelor's degree you gain a specialty and then now there's a three circles with a little hump outside of one of the last or the very last circle and then you get a master's degree 
And then instead of there being now four circles, there's three circles, but one of the circles has a hump in it. Okay. Yeah, it's almost then, reaching out towards the edge of that barrier of the, the the circle that represents all of human knowledge. So now instead of expanding outwards in all directions and having well-rounded knowledge, it almost looks like there's an arrow pointing out, like a growth coming out of the center of the knowledge that you have. Yeah, a growth coming out of like a bullseye mm-hmm. towards the end of the dartboard. And then reading research paper, papers takes you to the edge of human knowledge. And then it, it goes all the way to the edge of human knowledge, okay? So this is insane. <laughs> Reading research papers takes you to the edge of human knowledge. Def- depends how you define knowledge. At, and he's obviously defining it here as research. Mm. Reading research papers is actually knowledge. Wild, okay? It's an aspect of knowledge, and it's not the, in any way an application of anything, like in real life. It's reading research papers that are already there. And, and in the sports science field, it's very new. And mm. uh, I, would, I would argue personally, this is my personal opinion, that a lot of it is way off in its observations, which they don't really do that well, and hypothesis and methods within papers. There's some good ones. A lot of them are terrible that I've read. Um, anyway, it goes to the last one. And then... Once you are at the boundary of your focus, you're at the boundary of the dartboard at the edge. You push the boundary for years, and then that dartboard is growing out a little bubble, and that's where you got your PhD. And that, that's when you've made a dent, and it's called a PhD. So your PhD is literally like a quarter of a percent of a circle coming out of a giant dartboard. Okay? And... uh when he zooms in, it's literally just a little bump. I actually agree with that part. You're so micro-focused uh, in your PhD that it means that you've done papers, you've been peer-reviewed, but do you have a overall picture of knowledge? No, you've decided to spend your time hyper-specializing in one area, and you may be forgetting the bigger picture, and that's kind of like my hypothesis as well, is that you're forgetting the bigger picture of uh, the whole human being. Okay. This is very, uh, telling of a, uh, I'm going to get off the screen here. Stop screen sharing. I'm going to say that's very telling of, um, a very not holistic way of looking at things, not even dualism. It's like a microcosm. It's like the parts. If you put enough parts together, you'll get the whole, so the mm. sum of the parts equals the whole there, but it's really not like that. You right. have to take a holistic view, which the, like current science hates that word holistic. Okay. Um, you have to micro, uh, specialize and then everybody who micro specializes shares their specialties. And then that together is the pinnacle of human knowledge. I think this is the wrong way to go because you're compartmentalizing knowledge into hyper specialties when uh, uh, that I think is the wrong way to go. I think you need people to do a holistic view of how things come together. Okay. Where's the specialty in that? Mm. I would say so, maybe Nodi is doing so, something like that, right? Well, like, yeah. So maybe so we're I would, doing I would something say, like that. I would say that the, the, there, there's a, like, I don't want to dismiss either the, the utility of having hyper-specialized people no. because we, 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 that is how we push the boundaries of what we understand about minutia and, and little details that could actually be relevant to the whole picture, right? Like if, you, if you're looking at, for example, like a holistic view, 
but you have one piece wrong that is part of like the whole chain. You know, like if you have like you think of like knowledge, like a holistic view as a chain, and there's one link on the chain that's incorrect, and it just like the rest of the chain falls off. You need to have good, accurate information about minutia, but minutia. Oftentimes, the the issue with, and we've discussed this on the philosophy of science, oftentimes when you're using a rational reductionist method to isolate and, you know, isolate variables specifically, you're looking at one aspect of something that is so, especially with human movement, it is so multivariable, there are so many forces, so many things to consider that it's, first of all, it's hard to design studies that get to the level of granularity but also maintain the big picture right so so typically the trade-off is that you lose that holistic view for getting granular specific reductionist accurate information because you have to control for variables in order to get accurate um results from from a scientific study right ultimately you have to control variables you have to reduce variables you have to eliminate variables so that they they aren't confounding but the issue is that when you eliminate variables that could be confounding, you lose the big picture of all the other things that when you look at reality will confound your findings because in reality, how often does this variable not coexist with the other variables that you cut out and didn't account for? This is an issue in nutrition science, for example, too, when they talk about um, you know, the role of fructose or, uh, on, on the liver causing damage, but you look at you know, whole food studies on fruit having a totally different effect on, on your system. There's, there's, there's issues with isolate nutrients and look at in vitro studies on how this nutrient affects certain cells, but that's not how human metabolism works. And when you're actually looking at the actual process of digestion and metabolism, it's a totally different uh, thing that, that happens. And so a lot of people will conflate a lot of isolation, like nutrient isolation studies to actual human nutrition, but we aren't, we aren't eating soylent green. We aren't eating these like little nutrient partition things isolated from food. We're eating food. Right. And so this is, this is one of the challenges that we experience. Well, um, okay. There is room for hyper-specialization. Okay. But it's not the pinnacle of human knowledge. It's not reading research is not, and conducting hyper-specialized research isn't the pinnacle of human knowledge. It isn't all what knowledge is defined as. And there is definitely room for the whole picture. Like somebody, let's say specialized in looking at the whole picture. Cause we don't have, mm. that doesn't exist. Like, mm -hmm. where is that? Right. Um, because if you start arguing that it's the PhDs who are hyper-specialized arguing with each other, will go, who are you? Where's your PhD? Right? Like it, it's kind of ridiculous that that's the thought. So right now the people who are, bringing that world in are people without credentials for the most part. Mm. Like, uh, or I have some credentials, right? Like I'm, uh, Dr. Will, uh, yeah. you know, like I've, I have a university degree, all that stuff. I came up in the world of research papers and science. Is that my mic or yours? That's mine. Okay. okay. Yeah. So I've, I've, uh, come up in the world of science. I understand how it goes. Um, I understand that it is very, um, uh, I guess you could say hierarchical, hierarchical, okay? It has a hierarchy that you do um, respect in order to keep going higher in the hierarchy, okay? Um, so that has nothing to do with what's actually true, though. You mm. know what I mean? Like, you can get truth from doing hyper-specialization, but 
the PhD itself does not entail truth. There is an amalgamation that needs to happen, okay? And it's happening right now via better technology and people outside of the uh, the whole academic world, I'm going to say. Maybe we should pull up that, uh, um, that one Instagram post that pertains to this topic. Yeah, I'm on it. Very interesting. Let me see if I can uh, pull this up here. And, and I do think there's, there's a major psychological aspect to all this too. And this is completely my opinion on like when I'm going to say what I say. So feel free to play devil's advocate or um, yeah, of agree, course. disagree or like or whatnot. But it's very interesting when you actually go through this. So um, this person that posted this, I don't even know if I want to say his name because I really like the guy. He seems very open and very inquisitive and he's a PhD candidate. But it does highlight the psychological aspect around this whole debate. Uh, maybe we want to play the post and uh, can you can you see the post? I can, yeah. Okay, cool. Let me see if I can uh, switch to. I'll just switch to a because it's a very very interesting post, both psychologically and knowledge wise. Okay, I'm gonna play this from my speakers. Let's. Uh, I'll just hit refresh here, and we'll go full sound. Can you hear it? Very, very light. Better. That's that's better. Maybe we should play it over again. Research that you know that people calculate from the models, like the post I just made, is all of them say the maximum ACL strain or how much it deforms relative to its original length. It's all it's all maximum while the person's in the air and the legs are straight. But like, when's the last time you see a person that tear the ACL in the air with their knee straight, right? It doesn't make sense. Like things just doesn't connect. I don't know why. One paper that directly investigates the effect of a valgus or valgus collapse position with like three degrees of knee flexion, hip IR and tibial ER, which is what people describe as that torsion um, position of the knee, and the ACL length actually decreased. So it's actually shorter. There's there's less of a string. So so what is going on here? <laughs> to try to explain like what, what's going on. Um, maybe it's just that the valgus, the collapse happens after the ACL has failed, right? And a lot of papers are talking about landing or when you're changing direction, planting the foot on the ground with unanticipated timing on the extended knee might be when the ACL actually fails as opposed to the knees coming in, which may be an after effect because none of them talked about valgus. So is it about bending your limbs okay, upon yeah. contact with the ground, the key to preventing ACL injuries all along? Maybe. So, okay. Super interesting, eh? Mm, very, very much so. Um, I have a little, bit, have of little bit of an echo. To yeah, give me, give me two seconds. I just yeah. have to switch my system settings again. I'll and then it. eventually we'll figure out this. Uh, we're recording on a new software here, so that should get rid of your echo here. Yeah, so, yeah, so uh, uh, if I can... No. If I can one sec. All good. All good. And I'll edit this out after too. Cool. cool. 
Maybe I can put it. All right. Did that work? Testing, testing. All right, sweet. So uh, basically, the uh, what? First off, everything is like it's so far off there. First off, you have to use observations first before you go into a lab and test them. They're doing opposite. They're testing and not even doing observing. Okay, so if I was to just be a person off the street and I say, or not off the street, but like a very intelligent person who wants to devise a study on how to see how ACLs tear, what's the first thing you do? You observe thousands of ACLs tearing, super slow-mo it, and that'll give you the, uh, you know, the data Mm. Um, observationally and then you go into the lab and you design studies to confirm this right um that's not what's happening there right so he goes well i I don't really get it because the strain on the ligaments is highest when the leg is straight and in the air but that's never when it actually tears it tears when it's on the ground okay Mm. um so what is going on here i don't get it and and it's just like Sorry, go ahead. Well, it's just, you know, and, and he's, he's saying, it's like, hey, this is from in vivo ACL research using technology, you know, using up-to-date technology. Um, but we can we can look at how the, the ACL behaves in movement. Um, but at the same time, there, you know, he's saying, I'm looking at this data and it still doesn't make sense. You know, you're not talking about valgus. You're not talking about this torsion, you know, the actual thing that would cause the strain and the tears of ACLs. He's like, I just, I, I, he, he admits that he doesn't really get it. Right. Yeah. Maybe we should pull up the, uh, the talking points between us there. Um, yeah. So, so so I have the comments pulled up here. I will, uh, just quickly share my screen again here. We can pivot off that because it's kind of confusing. Um, basically it's a mystery of why the ACL would tear when the foot's on the ground and not off the ground, because off the ground is where they calculated the highest force, on the ACL to be um, using a computer model, which is an, an issue because you're, you have to have the right inputs to get the right outputs. If you don't have the right inputs, you won't get the right outputs. And uh, the problem there amongst what I just said is that um, you can't go in the lab and actually get somebody to tear their ACL. <laughs> no, you, you got to you got to guess <laughs> like, um, oh, it's the highest here. I don't get it. OK, so they have the wrong model, in my opinion, that of how the ACL tears in the first place. It's not tibial ER and femur IR all the time. And again, they're both gyroscopes, man. They're rotating fast in mm. fast motion. Things can get stuck into the ground like your heel. OK, like your foot. They can get stuck and things stop rotating and then maybe the other one keeps rotating, uh, not accounted for at all. They're like, it has to be clean. This one has to do an ER with relative uh, foot drop. So it, it is going IR, but it's relatively ER. And then the femurs could definitely going IR. So I don't know what's going on here, right? So uh, let's... And we'll, we'll, we'll try to have him on for a discussion at some point too. We don't want to, yeah. you know, just like have a bunch of arguments against the points that he's making without having him have the opportunity to respond either. So... Um, Sam, if you happen happen to watch this, uh, we would love to have you on the show, and we'll we'll have an, a friendly discussion about this. Because, um, so you know, your comment was what, like, basically what you just said. What if the way that ACL strain is measured isn't accurate? The observations do not match the lab models slash theory. So you throw away the observations. 
somebody's response is it's much more accurate than when you can't directly observe it. You actually measure where the ACL attachment points move on each skeleton and compute the strain. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Can't observe it. What are you talking about? Like, you can observe it, though. It's like there's, there's thousands of them. They're everywhere. Like, you can watch all day. They just won't do it. It's, it's just not part of the scientific process at the moment to actually take them, uh, watch them in real time, slow-mo them, and talk about it with your buddies um, who are also PhDs. Yeah. Okay? If, just- I, if I had to guess where he's coming from where, where when he's saying you can't observe it, I'm, I'm going to assume that there's like – a lack of actually physically seeing the ACL and how it's behaving, but you can watch the moment in time. You can actually see the snap in the person's ACL when you're watching some of these slow motion. It's very gruesome, actually. Like you see the like the pop in their knee happen, and you're like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> I think he's talking about the lab, though. You can't actually watch directly observe it in the lab. In the lab, right? Yeah. So, you know, you're saying that yeah, – and, and here's so, – so his thing is like you can, you can measure where the ACL attachment points move on each skeleton and compute the strain to which you say that computer models are not reality. They depend on inputs, which can possibly be inaccurate. Can you, um, can you show a real-life ACL tear without torsion? Because, yeah, that's the claim, right? It's, it's higher strain when it's straight and in the air, okay, mm. when it's hinged and in the air. And uh, in reality, that your your observations don't match, uh, or sorry, your model of what you're uh, putting out there does not match reality. So let's go with reality, right? But like this is very telling of what the whole field like is doing now, and I see it everywhere well, and amongst <laughs> different fields too. Trust me. And it's and, and it's uh, interesting too, man, because it's like he's he's saying good point, but in all these papers, they attain the input of MRI with. Uh, you know, with uh, an MRA of ACL attachments, right? And so it's like, he's saying, it's like, yeah, okay, I understand that what you're saying is based in, in observations of reality, but this paper says something else, right? And so it's like, if the paper, like if the data, which could be erroneous data based <laughs> because it doesn't match the observations, it's like, there's something amiss here. Maybe the data is wrong. Maybe the inputs are wrong, like you said, you know? It's well, like, they're, they're appealing to technology there. Mm. Like I used better technology than that. Well, it's like you didn't use you didn't apply it correctly though. Like you, you can like you can have the uh, in this ex- I can use this example straight up. If you don't actually look at the ACL tear, you're not going to know what happens. You can hypothesize about it, but go out there. There's more strains than you can count. Okay, um, happening in real time. So take that what you see from there, then create your hypothesis in the lab if you want to okay and we don't actually have to know how it strained in the moment because you can confirm it afterwards if your acl strained afterwards you strain the acl Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. um and again you can just go and create the study afterwards that's the better way to do it if anyone has a phd or a phd candidate right now i'm giving you some advice that's a better way to do it well, and, and it's funny. He's like, I'm not saying that observations are not helpful, but I find it hard to parse out the exact reason, especially with this kind of research present, right? And so it's like maybe if there's a, a flaw in or, or a, a divergence between what you are observing and what the research is saying, maybe you should look at well, – because we've done this a couple of times. We've looked at papers that have been used to, quote, debunk certain functional fitness ideas that we've explored – 
And when we look at the nature of the paper and we look at the method section, it's obvious that they're inputting the wrong variables and the wrong observations about what, you know, they're, they're testing the wrong things fundamentally, right? So th this can happen on any point of the research process, right? Um, and he's wait, very helpful, wait. right? He's like, can you go back up? And mm -hmm. I just want to say one thing about that. Uh, um, I'm, then I'm not saying observations are not helpful. No, they're not only helpful. They're necessary you have to do them like it's part of the scientific yeah. process it goes some, yeah, observation the then method. you theorize then you conduct your study you don't do it backwards that's not a thing that's the scientific method okay but here he's appealing to authority he's like well the authorities did it this way so i mean it, i don't get it because the observations aren't matching it's like well you have to go back and do the observations and it's like well we have this technology that's really awesome so let's use that instead it's like oh man it's crazy well, and, you know, the point that you make are, like, when have you ever observed, like, most of the time you can see the ligaments give way in real time, much like in, you can observe in Durant's Achilles injury. Would you say that that happened in the air or planted? You know, um, it's way easier with an Achilles than an ACL, which I agree with, um, but it happens so quick. I think it's pretty much impossible to know exactly unless you get lucked out and participant unlucky in the lab, right? So, again, you can't tear someone's ACL in the lab setting. He keeps um, going back to the lab, though. Like, why? Why do you want to be in the lab? Be because he wants to control variables, right? He wants to be able to hyper-observe and to have uh, mechanical data and technologically enhanced data to increase the quality of his observation, right? This is, this is what I understand, is that people who appeal to lab data want to have more than just eyesight observation. And there is relevance to that. You can't always trust your eyes. You can see something and misinterpret what you're seeing entirely. And that's, you know, that's just like a flaw in human interpretation. I mean, if we can argue for days about what a paper means, you know, we can, we can observe, you know, the same thing and see totally different things in terms of our interpretation. So well, that's why you do the observation first, though. Right? Mm -hmm. Like you do the observation first in order to hypothesize and then you go into the lab and hyper specialize. So you can take out ridiculous variables. Like if you don't ever see the ACL tear when it's in the air, then you probably shouldn't use that as a hypothesis <laughs> in your in your study. You know what I mean? So like you have to do the observations first. That is the scientific method. If you want to argue with the scientific method, that's cool. But uh, should probably do the scientific method. Right. And so, you know, let's let's say he was using the scientific method in this situation, right? Just to just to play devil's advocate, right? If he has this data and they observed some sort of strain that goes against maybe some some observation, right? Maybe it doesn't necessarily even have to contradict. Maybe there's maybe it says something about the way that the ACL functions or maybe this data is relevant to some other aspect of biomechanics that is irrelevant to uh, ACL injuries, but there is some sort of data that you parsed out. Um, maybe you form a hypothesis and you test that hypothesis further and you create m further observations to see what's going on here. Why is this data showing up? Why, why does, you know, like for example, he's like, I'm very confused here. All right. Well, in order to be less confused, how, like form a high, like make some observations, form a hypothesis of why that data is showing up and then test to see if you're right. I think that would be a, an intelligent way to kind of go about this if this is something that's perplexing to him. Um, but conversely, right, again, if you're, if you're going from observation first and then you're, you know, of actual movement, of slow motion movement, right, um, 
why you, you make the point of why would it even have to be in the lab if there's thousands of examples to draw on frame by frame? And I'm not saying that you can't go into the lab to devise a study afterwards, but if I observe an ACL injury, can later be reconfirmed that it is ACL with an MRI and stuff, and I see similar loading patterns in almost every case, I can logically conclude that it's rotary, tibia, femur, and ankle in various combinations, valgus, and when closed chain. I'd be willing to debate that any day. And, and he, he agrees. He's like, I can agree with how you can conclude that. You know? Yeah. Is there any other? I think there's comments further down that are um, pertinent. Let's see. So he tags, uh, he tags a lot of the big guys in the industry, like Flexible, David Gray Rehab, and Angus Bradley to comment. And uh, let's see what they say. Um, hmm. uh, go, go back up because I commented on that one somewhere. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just, so David Gray. What, what did David Gray say? Go up. Um, oh, here we go. Yeah. So David Gray said, I've seen su- suggestions for years now that the ACL tear is happening way before the valgus position occurs. I defer to smarter people than me to try. <laughs> I defer to smarter people than me to try and figure yes. out exactly Appeal what's to going authority. on. But I focus way, way more on training pre-activation now with my ACL clients as a result. So why would you train? Like if you don't know the mechanism, mm. how are you training to stop the... ACL tears from happening. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, wouldn't it be smart to understand the mechanisms and focus on that so we can intelligently rehab towards uh, ACL prevention? Um, that would be a lot smarter to me. And uh, here's the thing. I think it does happen before Valgus. So he's correct there. But I, when you go down and I ask, like, what suggestions? What are those suggestions? Of course, crickets, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, because I think they're trying to avoid at this point what the mechanisms are. Because I, th- I think I know them because I've watched so many. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. either way, let's, let's see. Uh, there might have been another exchange here before I get into that. Um, let's see what. Death of Gota. That was funny. So Ben Dunks um, said it's the death of Gota. Um, check out some of the papers I listed next step in understanding injuries and more realistic concepts internal tibial rotation slash torsion would be more conducive to Gota's hypothesis than what the models are saying though what do you mean by death of Gota and then Sam replies by saying the studies say ACL strain is less when torsioned or as many call knees in which I'm pretty sure is what Gota doesn't want which again is is not 100% 100% true. There's a, there's like a, a pattern that Gota describes. Knee valgus is not the... Like, people say that it's pronation and knee valgus that is what uh, Gota says you shouldn't do. And that's not entirely true. Because that's they not are, true. Because they're using a different language, right? When you have inside ankle bone high, that ain't tibial IR. Yeah, I know. What's, right? he, what's he talking about? Like, okay, so he's he's taking the papers that are obviously not matching observation and then saying it disproves Gota. <laughs> it's like, no, it's strengthening their position. Right. There. Like, uh, or what? Okay, uh, that, let's see. And, 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 you, and you reply by saying it's, well, no, it doesn't match the reality and observation, though, as you stated yourself. Um, also, when ankle collapses, the tibia moves internally and medially combined with torque, which is true. And then, but how do you parse that from femur internal rotation too? 
So here's here's the kicker here. Here's the red herring. This is where everybody wants to go. It's like, who cares? Okay. So <laughs> uh, both bones are rotating fast. One mm. gets stuck into the ground and not rotating as fast, and then the knee gets shredded. Okay. So um, that can happen in various combinations. Most of the time, let's see if I can put my foot up here. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop sharing for a sec so people can see your foot in real in real time here. I'm going to get up on the chair. Can you see that? Okay. Here, I'm going to take off my sock. Okay. When when I plant... Can you hear me right now? I can hear you, but I can't see your foot. Okay. Right there on the desk. Okay. Yeah. When I plant, my leg goes to the inside here. They'll call that tibial external rotation because relatively my tibia is maybe going this way. Okay. But really, it's gyroscopic. It's dumping towards the inside. So the energy's dumping towards the inside. If I keep going like this, watch in slow-mo. Okay? Yeah. If I keep going like that, I'm going to have a serious problem. Everyone can say that or see that. Okay? Someone hits me right now here. I'm going to tear an ACL. <laughs> okay? Like, uh, this is very easy to see. So it's actually femur's going internally. Or sorry, the tibia's going internally. Okay? Mm. And... What's actually happening here is that this is getting stuck. Sometimes the heel gets stuck into the ground, like when you're lifting, you're really applying this uh, mechanic into you, okay? Mm. So that's getting stuck. This stops spinning quickly. This bone keeps spinning fast because you're going forward. There's a torque on the knee. Boom, okay? Or you get hit from the side or you push hard to the side. That's why it's not important so much as to what's rotating where. It's how the torques are... uh, the torque speed is switching, okay? The torque at the knee is key. Easy, natural way to test this is chicken bone. Just turn it. Boom. That's how you yeah, break basically. up part of chicken bone, man. It's not yep. straight. But I can take – imagine there's an ACL on a chicken bone. I can pull it and it will be taut. But I break it by turning it, okay? So, again, I, my ankle comes here. I dump on the inside. And everybody agrees. I've never seen anyone disagree that too much pronation is bad. So forget about the go to um, – argument for now about inside ankle bone high which i think is still correct sorry guys i still think it's correct okay but uh forget about that example for now we all know that over pronation is bad look what happens to the tibia dumps inwards this is going inwards okay you can play with language and say it's going relatively external i don't care what you say okay so you can say <laughs> that if you want to but it's the energy's going this way okay you have to keep going forward ACL tears. There is your PhD um, hypothesis that you can use in a lab and test that one out, please. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, like this idea of like your ankle and to be kind of getting stuck too while the femur continues to rotate. That's another element, right? Like if your foot dumps, you don't have that level of ankle articulation. That's another go to argument, by the way. Is that's the reason for keeping the. Um, you know, it's funny. I stopped liking the cue inside ankle bone high as much because you can't yeah. like actually lift the the ankle bone. You just zoomed way in. On yeah, your yeah, face. I know. I see that. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like it's it's almost more of like a a dome pre- Like it's it's interesting because it's like a, a a pressure to maintain the integrity of the dome so that you don't collapse in on your foot, so that your dome doesn't collapse, so that you don't have that. Uh, you know sort of degradation of the structure and your ankle gets locked up your tibia can't articulate your, your it will not rotate properly and then your femur head can still rotate because it's free in the ball and socket joint of the hip 
mm-hmm. that's where you kind of get some of that torsion effect on the knee and that's where you end up with knee problems yeah so um it doesn't necessarily have to go valgus and like the thing is everybody's obsessed with valgus they're not even like uh, when i w- look at the research <clears throat> on on valgus and they're like 30 uh female soccer players jumped off a box and know, leg I went know. in. It's like, what are you measuring here? It's like, this is insane. I remember okay? going over that one. With yeah. Like, this is really, this is, this has, no, and it's funny because that was touted as like, look guys, there's no more valgus, like, you know, associated with ACL tear. It's like, dude, you just got some girls to jump off a box. It w- you weren't testing <laughs> any specific, you weren't testing any relevant variables here at all at all. Yeah. So that's, it, it's pretty in like, I'm going to say insane to me that like um, they can't just go to the observations first and observe that happening. And that's not necessarily the only way because there, there can be, I mean, sticky situations where you're turning in a weird fashion. Right. But that's most of the time mm-hmm. it's going to be like that, that I've observed and nobody's like, nobody will even talk about it. They're like, Oh, I don't, I don't see that at all because they don't want to do the inside ankle bone low thing and say that goat is correct. And, and like the, the funny thing is that in this one here, People are like, I, I don't know the mechanism. It must be a straight leg when you're swinging it through the air. But I don't see anybody actually tearing it like that. Then I had a strength coach who seems to be like he was in the game for a long time come at me. And he's like, you know how I always say, if you can find an inside ankle bone low ACL or Achilles shred, please send it to me because it'll be counterproof. It's a black swan. It'll literally be the counter opposite. Mm. And I got a interesting reply from a guy. He's like, well, the mechanism is inside ankle bone low, so you can't get that black swan. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the whole point. And he's like, well, it's exactly like an Achilles tear. Uh, or sorry, a, um, let's say a lateral ankle sprain where if your ankle turns laterally, that's the mechanism. So mm. I can't give you a black swan of inside ankle bone high because that's not how it tears. And I'm like – that's Goda's argument. <laughs> that's and, the whole and, thing. <laughs> and, and not only that, but then I get to a paper like this, and they're like, I don't know how it tears. Uh, what are you talking about? So which one is it? Which one right. is it, guys? Send me that inside ankle bone high. Uh, and then he's like, well, um, Weck disproved it, uh, something a Gillies 10, and he's going off on – these guys hate Goda, right? So they're like yeah. spiraling, and they're like, well, what about the Gillies 10? And uh, Weck made you look like a beta – it, uh, by disproving you on on your podcast, I'm like, uh, did you watch it? Because Weck was like, oh yeah, you're right. Sorry, you know, like yeah, he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, right? I, I love Weck, by the way, right? But clearly, he was off the inside edge on that. Uh, well, and and here's Achilles I, I want I want to make a distinction. It. I want to make a distinction here too, yeah. because here's here's the issue about using like go to make correct observations. That doesn't mean that they're automatically going to be good at training to create the attributes and these movement patterns themselves, right? So the, the people that they train are not automatically going to be gotas. You know, they like, maybe they can observe gota behavior as they put it, and they can observe, you know, safe, efficient, good mechanics. But does their training system automatically uh, confer these attributes and these movement patterns? No, not necessarily. Uh, in fact, in a lot of cases, you can see people over-exaggerating the patterns and they end up becoming less secure. You know, you see some guys that are running and they kind of look like drunk girls on high heels running because they're exaggerating the heel away thing and they're misinterpreting the pattern. They're misinterpreting the force transfer and it ends up being kind of sloppy and they're not developing the actual structural integrity. 
with the training system, right? So just because they made the correct observations doesn't mean the training system is fucking like airtight and it's perfect and it's going to be good. It just means that they have good observations that should be taken into consideration. It just means that they have maybe airtight arguments where you can't find that black swan inside ankle bone low ACL tear. But does that mean that, you know, so, so using like one of their athletes that got injured, it's like, it's kind of a dumb example, right? It's like, okay, yeah, they made the correct observations, but look, the way that they that the athlete that they trained was inside ankle bone low when he got injured. So I'm sorry. Like, you know, your argument still is like, there's that, that's not your black squan. The Achilles tendon is, you know, isn't a thing. It just, maybe the, maybe the training system didn't, isn't foolproof because nothing in the world is practically foolproof in my opinion. Yeah. We should really go over, uh, like the straw men arguments of within that paradigm, because there's so many that come at me. They like stack logical fallacies and it's hard to even, uh, get through, you know, because it's like one, do you actually watch the slow motion? Do you, do you watch enough actual movement, actual injuries to say that you understand what they're saying? Because, they're actually saying some complicated stuff. So make sure you understand it first. I find a lot don't. There's a lot mm. of misinterpreta- misinterpretation. Look, there's an inside ankle bone low guy by someone they claim is uh, Goda. Therefore, Goda's debunked. Uh, <laughs> what? They claimed everybody's always inside ankle bone high. That's insane. Oh, you trained Goda? Look, I snapshotted a picture of you with your inside ankle bone low while you're boxing. It's just like, oh, man. So I now claim <laughs> yeah, because I trained Goda for do that. Oh, yeah. So, so I trained Goda like, for like a couple of years and uh, I still go inside ankle bone low, guys. Like it's not a foolproof. <laughs> it's not like you get a certification, which I don't have, but it's not like you start training Goda and you're just always inside ankle bone high. It's like doesn't work like that. You're not getting big bows. You're not getting you're not cornering correctly immediately when you start training. Uh, it takes years and you might even lose it. It's like. Yeah, the the great part about Goda to me is the resting positions. It's like mm. rest more, be in resting positions. It's like understand that there's a code to movement, and that one I will debate is that there is a blueprint to movement. Okay, yeah. um, human inborn, just like breathing, just like uh, you know, um, knowing how to have sex, anything. You're inborn with a code to movement. It is rotary and spiral in nature. Um, now, how to get there, that's a different story. That's up for debate, okay? Yeah, but, exactly. Um, if you want to debate the actual fact that there's a blueprint to movement, then I'm up for that debate 100%. Yeah, and I'm, I'm super, super keen for yeah. that too. I haven't heard anyone who wants to stand up and actually like make the point, like make any like you know conclusive points that you could argue for or against in terms of that. A lot of the times it's you know arguing against the system itself or just saying that it's too reductionist or whatever. But again, I've, I've, I've not really heard a lot of good arguments against the observations. And so, you know, when people, it's funny because we have a lot of people that are like, oh, you guys are so pro Goda. You're so pro Goda. You're obsessed with Goda. You know, like we get a lot of comments in the YouTube. It's like, why are you, why are you guys Goda dick riders? It's like, we're not. <laughs> we're not. We like the, we, we use some of the methods and we, we basically, we don't, we don't find that there's anything that is significant enough to refute some of their observations. That's that, I'm speaking for myself, by the way. Um, I, th- I shouldn't say we. I find that there's not, if uh, you know, sufficient. Like from the visual data that they presented, I haven't found anything convincing to say that their model of gait, efficient gait patterning, 
is incorrect, right? So that's, that's from yeah. my perspective. Now, I've dabbled with a lot of different training systems. I've actually developed more Goda patterns from doing patterns that Goda would say are Woda, right? Like, I've de- like you know, from doing one-of-a-kind fitness, for example, like I did like a couple of months of one-of-a-kind fitness, and I, 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 my patterns seemed more uh, relatable to the Goda observations than when I had done... I think it was like six or eight months of the do-it-yourself courses and the, the follow-along workouts that Goda has, yeah. right? So, you know, in terms of how your structure changes and adapts and, re, you know, reacts to these dynamic forces, do I think that Goda is the end-all, be-all training system to have these efficient patterns? No, no. I actually, I, I actually really don't, and I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to discuss that with anyone, uh, yeah. you know, on, on, a, on a personal basis. But I do think that... Um, their observations about efficient mechanics are correct. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. And uh, here's the thing. When you have a big company, you have to kind of make a system. And the system does not fit. Every, everybody has to be personal. It's like where you're at, right? So whenever you have a big company, you have to make more of a system. And then the personal touch gets lost. Okay? So, um, yeah. I wouldn't say that I use... I don't even know what their exercises are anymore. I still use the bow, but I do it differently. I use, uh, I think one of a kind fitness is correct about the glutes being, uh, you know, the internal rotations where they stretch, obviously. Yeah. Okay. And you can see it in the gait cycle. So I do go towards that. Um, I like, uh, I like the bow position. Okay. I, I still train in the bow position in various ways, but it's not like go to does it. Um, yeah, and, and I even use ATG-type movements uh, with the inertia wave. I use uh, functional patterns-type of uh, chamber sequences, uh, even though I've never done functional patterns. I, I do a lot of different systems, and I, I try to code myself back into, like, quote-unquote, GOTA because I think it's the best and easiest way to uh, have a system to where, oh, I'm just coding back to this. Okay, mm. and these easy observations that I make on how I move. Okay, and uh, add in the resting positions. That was the biggest thing for me. Resting positions, beautiful, right? I was going too hard with uh, everything, so it's like yeah. <laughs> just rest. I didn't know that resting positions were a good thing for me. You know, it's just like what a concept, eh? <laughs> exactly. So there's a lot that you can take from other systems that will quote unquote make you more goda. Um, but I don't even like using that word anymore because it's too tainted and nobody even knows what it is. And yeah. like, there's a lot of hate. So it's like, what I, what I started yeah. saying, cause you know, even, even some of the, the go to coaches that I've worked with moved away from the system, but they still, you know, they agree with the idea of the math being correct and the observations being correct. They just didn't necessarily like the application from a training perspective. And so they moved away from it for a bit. And so, you know, what I've been saying are just like the observations of safe and efficient movement patterns in locomotion. Right. And yeah. There are, more, there are more safe and efficient and less safe and efficient movement patterns within locomotion. That is how I kind of start to look at it. Um, Goda was the company that first observed it. Coach Gill observed it. He pointed it out. It got refined by the coaches and the institute, and they, they, ha- they developed a language around it. And, you know, I still use that model. And so when I'm, you know, I do a lot of gait assessment for myself, uh, you know, from front, back, and side. And that's my that's my litmus test basically is I'm still using the go to patterns. I'm seeing how efficient is my energy transfer, how well how well is that wave of energy transferring up my entire chain, right? I'll I'll be able to see the the sort of shock wave ripple down my lats, and I'll be able to see that bow being created even though I'm not actively 
thinking about creating a bow anymore. Like I just don't do it anymore. Right. Like it's not something I actively think about. I tried to let go of like, what are my unconscious patterns? And then based on my observations of my own gait cycle, I'll observe how my body responds to stress, responds to forces, and then I'll train attributes and I will train uh, patterns around trying to orient my nervous system and my physical structure to orient more towards an efficient gait cycle. That's kind of how I approach my training now. Yeah. I think we should have uh, one of the go to heads on to see where they're at with that. Ask them some uh, pertinent questions. There's a lot of people who don't like Gota and like, um, I want questions coming in to challenge them because I'm sure that they would oblige, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that would be great. Yeah, they've never they've um, never backed down from a challenge, right? And that's no, that's that I... that's the thing, right? And and uh, some questions, some hard hitting questions. I'm sure Rick would be down for that. But uh, another thing is, I don't think they invented anything. They just observed it and repackaged it, and they mm-hmm. kind of admit this too. It's like I used Eldoa, I used uh, what's her name. Um, uh, back chain dominant woman, Noel Perez. Uh, well, even even the resting then, postures are muscles yeah. and meridians, right? Yeah, like, there you um, go. Phillip Beach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot from different systems, but most things are repackaged in a different package. Most people don't invent anything. They repackage things to make yeah. it more convenient for other people, to make it more organized for people in their own head. That's kind of the value that I got from it definitely mm. the organization and quieting the noise of like the industry that's all over the place. Okay. That was the value for me, but I've also, again, taken from, uh, you know, I can't, uh, thank functional patterns enough for the amount, like they got me out of the lifting paradigm. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, nobody mostly like talking, right. It got mm. me out of that at, at a time when I was like deep into, you know, CrossFit and heavy lifting and my body was just destroyed. Right. So, um, I use a lot of their concepts. I use even the one of a kind, um, even though I kind of knew this before, but I like his, um, uh, what's it called? Reactive stability. Like, no, not, not that, um, uh, his squat, the OKF squat. Right. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. I do various movements out of that. Maybe not the exact same way he does it, but I do think the glutes are loaded in internal rotation mm. and the landing, I think go right that you land in a bow. If you're going to absorb but if you're going to continue and you want to get spring off of it, you have to go go internal. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there there's an argument about that. Um, kind of preface that one for the nerds, but um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty it. cool stuff, man. So yeah. that's that's another episode wrapped up of the Art of Move podcast, guys. We'd love to hear your opinions of what you thought of some of the points that we came up with. Feel free to inundate our comments section with whatever you thought. We're always happy to check it out. You can follow me on Instagram at anthony.manuel, M-A-N-U-E-L-E. You can follow Dr. Will at The Art of Move. Uh, follow us on YouTube, subscribe to us on YouTube, on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you can listen to podcasts. We're stoked to be doing these. Um, upcoming episodes, we have some cool guests lined up for you. We're going to be doing another episode with Naudi Aguilar. We got a bunch of cool... Uh, we, we had some requests for some uh, martial arts guests as well, so we've been kind of trying to line some some cool boxing coaches and some other people up for that as well. Um, we're just going to be doing a lot of cool conversation. One conversation I'd like to get into since we started to dabble into it here is kind of talk about it, where our own practices are currently because I know mine's evolved quite a bit. Um, you yeah. know, I, I actually got a para bar from the functional patterns and I've been using that a lot and that's Sweet. super, super fun getting some of the Sweet. spiraling actions and, and being able to resistance train in that way has been like a total game changer for me, but I'd love to get into some of that. Um, anyways, guys, thank you so much for listening to the oh. art of move. We will ca- go ahead. Sorry, one thing to say. Um, I'm 
dropping my YouTube channel. Well, I'm actually going to start posting um, controversial takes on fitness industry. Um, stay tuned for that. That'll be coming up in the next week. You're going to love it. It's going to be very controversial. I'm going to go into different you know, YouTube channels and give my opinion long form. Uh, it's for the nerds. It's going to be entertaining. Stay tuned for that. And we'll be able to deliver a lot more technical information. Um, you know, I, I try to keep up as much as I can, but ultimately, you know, I was a guy who was a personal trainer and am now just enthusiastic and, and happen to be a good podcast MC. So go check out Will's uh, YouTube channel. He'll, uh, we'll post the, the link to that in the comments or in the description of this episode. And we'll catch you on the next episode of the Art of Move podcast, guys. Have a good one, guys. Boom, that was good, man. Dude, that was killer. That's going to be a really, really good.